Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am here in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, where summer has burst out, and it is sweltering hot and and oppressive you know after you know spring was only a week or two ago joining us from washington dc we have rosa brooks of georgetown law school uh hi rosa hi david and we have evelyn farkas of the german marshall fund hi evelyn hi david and we have off at Stately Loose Manor, um, <laughs> floating in his suspension tank. He has an entire room that's rigged like a suspension tank. Um, uh, he floats and vapes simultaneously. It's kind of amazing. Um, uh, Ed Loose. Hi, Ed. Good afternoon. Did I, by the way, you know, there's been an outbreak of teenage crime of people stealing their jewel supplies from each other, their vaping pods. So please be careful. <laughs> I, I'll change my social life drastically. Yeah, I guess. Thank you. <laughs> Stop hanging with adolescents. Stop hanging out on street corners. And as you can tell from that charming laugh, often what is probably a better climate uh, is... Um, Corey Shockey, are you in a better climate, Corey? No, I am in London, where what passes for mid-May is overcast, slightly drizzly, and completely absent of either baseball or the cerulean blue sky of my native California. Wow, the cerulean blue sky. Um, well, um, you know... Uh, if, Don, if Donald Trump continues the way it's going, we may never see cerulean blue sky again. But let's uh, let's let's glide right past that. There's so much stuff happening in the world. I thought I'd do a bit of a kind of a round robin, and I'm going to throw each one of you a a story that's you know sort of in the news this week. And as we get su- successively to each one of you, maybe uh, you can pick up on additional stories as well. Um, but, but of course, Corey, since you're off there and you're suffering, I'd like to go with what is the big breaking news story right now as we're recording this. Apparently, Nigel Farage was attacked today with a milkshake. And I want to <laughs> know, know what the geopolitical what? significance of this was. And if you were to attack Nigel Farage, what kind of a dessert would you use? <laughs> Exactly the kind of question that makes Deep State Radio under your leadership <laughs> magnificent, David. Right? Like, I feel like all of a sudden I'm transported into the Blues Brothers movies, right? You need 5,000 bucks fast. Who do you think you are, the Beatles? I feel like an action hero uh, because of this. So, if I were to attack Nigel Farage with a dessert, I feel like banana cream pie needs to be close to the top of the list because he's such a clown and and we shouldn't take him seriously and we should let the wheels of justice, uh, first of all, celebrate the journalism that exposed the $450,000 that he accepted illegally. Um, for his political party. And second, let the wheels of justice handle this. I feel like with with um, 
with people who feed off of public attention, like Nigel Farage and like the president of the United States, Donald Trump, that Nancy Pelosi had the right strategy. Deny them the platform, ignore them when, like, do not give them the oxygen that they feed off of. Um, interesting. Do you have any comments on the upcoming EU election? The um, I do not think, again, I would defer to, uh, uh, I would defer to Ed Luce of Luce Manor for all things uh, on British politics, but it looks to me like people here are going to treat the European elections the same way they typically treat the European elections, which is as, as a protest vote that they wouldn't cast in their national election where it has real consequences for their governance. Ed, Luce, Ed, have I got that wrong? Ed, Ed Luce of Loose Morals. Where do you come? Oh, Manor. Sorry. Where did I come up with Loose Morals? In any event, where where do you come out on where all this is going? What what with my with my binoculars, looking looking at the sort of long lines of people um, uh, waiting to vote from the Manor. Um, well, I I am um, I think before uh, he's correct that it is traditionally a protest vote. Um, but this is a protest vote with a very, very big difference, which is it could bring down Theresa May's government within a couple of days. If, if the opinion polls are correct in Britain and Nigel Farage's Brexit party gets between 30 and 40 percent of the vote and um, the Conservatives drop to 12, 13 percent, then Theresa, not only will Theresa May you know, be gone, I think she's going to be gone anyway, but not only will she be gone quickly, um, but the person who replaced her will be the closest possible prototype to Nigel Farage in the Tory party in order to stop the hemorrhaging to the Brexit party. So Boris Johnson would, I think, almost certainly be prime minister um, this summer, become oh. prime minister this summer. And, and, and that's why, you know, I mean, I fully agree with Corey about not giving the oxygen to the, the, the clowns and the charlatans like Farage. But he, he, he does matter, unfortunately. Um, and he's, you know, he's going to, he's going to engineer a change in government that that will essentially follow the Brexit Party line, um, which is why this isn't your your typical protest um, vote. And of course, you've got Farage-type characters, each with their own very distinct, different agendas. But broadly speaking, on the xenophobic, populist right, are uh, going to do extremely well across the board, um, pretty much uniformly across Europe, with one or two exceptions. Salvini is, uh, Northern League is surging in Italy. Marine Le Pen's uh, Rassemblement National, um, it, the neo-fascist party, is surging. It looks to be ahead of Macron, Macron's party in France, and so on. And so this is going to be a very dynamic moment, and I think it will be much more impactful than the usual protest vote. Well, that's terrifying. And it makes me wonder whether entire countries could be dropped on their head in the middle of the night and not know it. Uh, we obviously suffered that. The, the prospect of the Brexit party winning and, uh, and uh, uh, Boris Johnson ending up as prime minister is amazing. Um, Evelyn, let me turn to one other um, uh, related subject, uh, because a number of the people that um, Ed has mentioned, have had similar sponsors. Um, uh, and this led to uh, an interesting setup in Austria. Most people don't follow Austrian politics terribly closely. But somebody went to the head of the far right party, the vice chancellor, and said they were Russian and offering them oligarch money. And he said, OK, I'm all in for that. Turned out she wasn't, and he's now not in the government anymore. But it is kind of a symptom of the appetite of all of these groups for Russian cash. Yeah, it's pretty appalling. Um, although I have to commend the Austrian chancellor. So uh, Sebastian Kurz, he's all of 32 years old. Um, he, of course, is from the conservative. Um, actually, most people don't know this, but he's actually Joe Biden's great grandson. Are you making a joke? <laughs> Anyway, so he's a young guy. He's from the conservative party, the UFLP, 
um, Austrian um, People's Party, and um, he, but he's in a coalition with the Austrian Folks Party, um, which is uh, a Freedom Party rather, um, which is which is the party that's historically been associated with kind of the Nazi Party and their. And they've been, they've had leaders over time who have been cast and have been actually neo-Nazis. Um, this, the, the current leadership, it turns out, um, also has lots of ties to the far right. And this one guy was caught, um, a, a member of, of the vice president, was caught uh, taking a bribe. And, the, and luckily the chancellor, again, the conservative chancellor said, okay, forget it. I'm dissolving the government. We're going to do new elections. And we'll see what happens. Um, Austria is actually one of these examples, a positive example, oddly, given their history of, you know, uh, far-right Nazism, fascism, etc. They have a good recent history of standing up for democracy because in 2017, when someone also from this folks from the People's Party, the, the far-right um, kind of neo-Nazi party, looked like he was going to become president, um, which is largely ceremonial, but still, you know, was disturbing to the conservative party. The conservative party actually held its nose and made a deal with the socialist party. So today you don't have basically a neo-Nazi uh, president in Austria because of that decision, which if you think about it would be like, you know, Republic, well, Democrats or Repu Republicans reaching around Donald Trump to embrace and come, come up with a multi-party ticket with Democrats. So um, so it is interesting to watch and um, gave me a little bit of cause for hope because of all countries, um, the, the chancellor is reining it in. We'll see what happens. Um, because the fact that he went into coalition, I'll just add one other little thing, which was disturbing. When they went into coalition, they gave the interior ministry to, this, to the, to the uh, Freedom Party, which is the far right party. And the, free, and the interior ministry was raided, um, the, the, or, or rather, sorry, the the documents were taken from the Interior Ministry. I, the details now, they may have been taken from the from the courts by the Interior Ministry. Either way, it was clear that the far-right party was taking documents relating to far-right actors, um, probably trying to, to um, d uh, basically hide ties between those far-right actors and Russians and others. Didn't they just can the Interior Minister today? Um, I would imagine, but again, the whole government's going to go down. But the but the chancellor was upset about the fact the conservative chancellor was upset about what happened with the interior ministry. Of course, he was an idiot for letting them have control of that ministry because it was sort of foreseeable that they would try to cover up investigations that were ongoing, looking at far right ties to Russians and, of course, illegal far right neo Nazi activity. And so now let's just take a moment uh, to hear a word from a sponsor of uh, Deep State Radio, and we are really grateful for their support. Uh, and that is uh, the podcast Deep Dish on Global Affairs. If you like Deep State Radio, if you like the content, the substance of what we talk about here on Deep State Radio, you will love Deep Dish on Global Affairs. It is an expert explainer podcast that, like we do, goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. It explores foreign policy news, like you know why the U.S. is bombing Somalia or what's happening in Ukraine's election. And it really gets down to the level uh, uh, of expertise that you can't find uh, on the mainstream news, you can't find on cable television, and that you need if you want to understand what's going on in the world. Deep Dish gives current events broader context, explaining why they matter, and telling you what to watch for as the stories unfold. Uh, we uh, recommend you subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. By the way, um, just as a side story, my dad, uh, most of the people who grew up in Vienna in the same neighborhood as he did were killed by the Nazis, but his best friend wasn't. My dad came to the U.S. when the U.S. Army, you know, had a life in the U.S. His best friend escaped, went back, and became the head of the um, World Jewish Congress for Austria. And when, wow. when, when Kurt Waldheim was running uh, for president of Austria, um, he, this is the only time I remember, but his best friend, this guy named Paul Gross, came over to the United States. And my father said, well, why are you here? And he said, I'm going across the United States telling people not to protest Kurt Waldheim's candidacy 
because if Austrians know that America is against it, they'll vote for it. <laughs> that, that sounds about right. Um, so. <laughs> I, lived, I lived there for two years, so I, I should explain my, my boat a few days on this. From 90 to 92, I lived and worked in Austria, in Vienna. Um, well, there you go. Um, and I didn't even know that. So, um, Rosa, you know, I'm sort of, it, this all this brings to mind to me, you know, the McLaughlin group, that old TV show, where John McLaughlin would sit there and he'd sort of honk out in these turns and he'd say something to you like, Brooks, the spread of Nazism on both sides of the Atlantic, good or bad? Um, bad? <laughs> bad. I think bad, bad, right? Is that the answer? Yeah, then McLaughlin would go, correct. Um, do you want to elaborate on this at all? I mean, it really is, I, I, you know, to put, to put it in kind of, you know, measured political science uh, tones, this is fucking scary. Uh, yeah, it is fucking scary, although it's kind of endearing that and, 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 and indeed somewhat reassuring that uh, uh, these these allegations in this video in Austria have actually led to resignations, ousters, and, and probably more to come, uh, which is to say it suggests that the Austrian uh, public and the Austrian political discourse uh, has not become so cynical and as cynical as our own appears to be becoming that we simply shrug off uh, allegations of, of extreme corruption, collusion with ad, uh, adversarial foreign powers, etc. So in that sense, I suppose that's the silver lining here, right? Um, if you, if you, and, and, and you know you can always count on me to find a silver lining to apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> right. Rosa Brooks, and her next book, folks, is going to be called The Upside to the Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I also did want to return to the uh, original question about milkshakes and Nigel Farage um, uh, and, and to let you know, Corey, that it turns out that the the milkshake that was thrown at Nigel Farage, it was not banana cream pie. I don't know if the Brits really have banana cream pie, but it was extremely close. It, it, it was a a banana salted caramel milkshake oh, um, nice. and it came from five guys and the the milkshake thrower um the milkshake thrower was apprehended by the police afterwards um but he said that he felt that even though he had really been looking forward to drinking his banana and salted caramel milkshake he he felt that it had served a higher purpose being thrown at nigel <laughs> um, and this is apparently and, and you know um, um you know, Rosa, that the um, the, far, the really far right, even more far right mm -hmm. figure, Tommy Robinson, who was jailed um, in Britain, um, who's from a separate splinter, I mean, fascist party, basically, has had loads of milkshakes chucked on him. Every time yes, he speaks, no, I, I, he, he gets I have drenched. Heard about this. It's great. Um, this is, this I mean, is the, the, the traditional... The traditional, um, the, the traditional weapon of, of dessert is the custard pie in England, which you put in the yeah. face. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that local color because really, it's the pie flavor we're going for here. Yeah, yeah. See, here we do we do rotten rotten eggs and tomatoes in America, right? Yeah, and in, in well, the Middle East, they throw anymore. They'd throw shoes. Right. Remember George Bush? Yeah. yeah. Pickling has really declined as an art form. And as a baseball fan and a, a pupil of the great Bill Vec, I feel like we need to return to baseball heckling, political heckling. Um, and Britain can lead the way on this at loose. Well, wait a second. Well, was, the, I think the best hecklers possibly. <laughs> weren't, weren't the Detroit Red Wings... I may have this wrong. The hockey team, weren't they the ones where people would throw an octopus down onto, they were throwing. <laughs> That's right, the octopus on the ice. I <laughs> forgot about that. And it is Detroit, David, you're right. Yeah, throwing dead octopi on the ice is is really good. Wow, that yeah. might Bonus be even smelly. for getting the right plural of octopus, David. Well, thank you. I'm uh, well. My school teacher's heart is all a flutter. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I, I do think if people are going to throw something at someone, that the, the, the victims, those who have things thrown at them, should be glad if it's a milkshake. Because, number one, in a hot summer day, it's cooling. And number two, um, on the one hand, their suit is ruined. On the other hand, if they're hungry, they can just sort of lick it off. <laughs> Which is, of course, what you do. That is exactly, Rosa would sit there and go, oh, well. Never let a good milkshake go to waste. <laughs> not if it was banana flavored, though. I'm not <laughs> fond of banana flavor. If it was a mint chocolate chip milkshake, though, that would be oh. delicious. Oh. <laughs> there is also a tactical advantage in that you know if you've got a custard pie in your hand, it's really obvious you're not you're not about to eat it. Right. Um, with a milkshake, you know, who knows? You know, you you might be about to drink it yourself. It could go either way. It's a good. Uh, I like exactly. how you think, Ed. All right, let's Thank let's. You. Let's move on from this, although it's enlightening, and uh, um, I encourage our listeners to tweet or send in to us the appropriate desserts to throw at world leaders. Um, pumpkin pies come to mind, but who would we throw that at? In any event, um, uh, uh, Corey, um, the Iranian government um, seems to be upset that the president of the United States uh, tweeted out the other day that we would destroy Iran, um, and we and and that the president was seems to be upset that the news media seems to be reporting that he's escalating the conflict with Iran, um, and the intelligence community seems to be sending a mixed message, in which some are suggesting that uh, there has been more threatening activity from the Iranians, and others are suggesting that the Iranians are only responding to the threatening activity from the United States. Um, find for me, possessor of the tiara of optimism, something to be optimistic about in the current state of play. I can actually find something to be optimistic about in the current state of play. In fact, I can find three things to be optimistic about. The first is that um, the... Uh, escalatory actions and um, intemperate rhetoric of the president of the United States are by two years in his presidency and the experience of the North Korean negotiations now heavily discounted by both allies and adversaries. And so uh, no matter what John Bolton uh, writes on his yellow legal pad to be caught by uh, careful eyes of journalists or uh, what Mike Pompeo echoes the president saying, I, I honestly don't believe and I don't think either allies or adversaries believe that Donald Trump is actually willing to fight the kind of war that his rhetoric suggests. So that's thing one. Thing two to be optimistic about is that um, the uh, it looks like America's regional allies, in particular the UAE and Saudi Arabia, who were both the targets of shipping or oil facility attacks that could very plausibly have been Iranian in origin, and might be related to the increase in, um, in concern on the part of American intelligence communities and the precipitate for actions by the Trump administration. Those regional allies are playing a dampening role, not an escalatory role. And, and that's both a good thing and a little bit of a surprise to me, given how irresponsible the leader of Saudi Arabia has been on other issues. And the third reason um, for, um, for optimism in this crisis is that America's closest friends and treaty allies uh, have signaled very clearly that they consider the US withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear agreement to be the what set all of these boats rocking and that they have no intention of supporting the United States in an escalation, in particular, in military action against Iran. And that, too, has a dampening effect. So, so I can find three possible, three 
positive areas for optimism, David? Um, well, I knew you could do that if anybody could, but let me keep trying in this direction. Um, uh, and let me pick up something, uh, uh, Evelyn, that has um, also figured in the news recently and may impact how we are viewed in the Middle East. You know, we pulled out of what Rosa lovingly calls the Jikpoa, and that's led to this um, escalation and the prospect of a fight. Now the president of the United States, who, you know, winked at the Saudi government murdering a U.S. journalist, not to mention, you know, literally crucifying people and doing other horrifying things recently, um, the president seems to be contemplating um, pardoning war criminals who indiscriminately shot people in the Middle East. Uh, I'm just wondering, does that seem like a, a, a bad move to you from a diplomatic perspective? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the details of all of these cases, I confess, but we know this president has a really dicey track record on pardons. I mean, the people that he has chosen to pardon, with the exception of the, the African-American woman who was um, uh, put in jail under the zero tolerance for, I think it was selling drugs or being found with them in any event, the, the, the Kim Kardashian engineered pardon. With, that, with the exception of that one, the grandmother who was uh, pardoned, um, I, I find that most of his pardons have a very sinister sort of almost sinister undertone because they are directed at supporters, alt-right folks like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, people who actually uh, are known for, for, first of all, being racist, second of all, worse than that, mistreating um, uh, Americans and also uh, illegal immigrants. And, um, and so, uh, and then of course he's hinted about pardoning a bunch of his cronies. And, you know, he, he, he basically pardons people who have been found guilty of corruption and or, um, you know, um, violations almost of human rights, if you will, in the case of Arpaio. So, um, so I, I'm not certain about these particular cases. I'd have to look at them. One of them, I know the guy hasn't even been, uh, he hasn't even been sentenced or he hasn't even been found guilty rather. He hasn't, so there's been no, no final determination of whether he needs a pardon or not. Um, but presumably his, his lawyers believe that he's going to be found guilty and convicted. Um, but I, I, I just, you know, this president's track record is not good. And I guess I'll just close with the reason for it, you know, probably is because he doesn't go through the normal processes. He just picks and chooses. And as we all know, uh, like most of us deep staters, there's always a process and there was a process for pardons, and there's an office that goes through them and gives recommend reviews and gives recommendations. And this president, we know from media coverage, doesn't even pay any attention to that process. So, I think as an American, I I look very I look with a, a severely jaundiced eye, which sounds kind of gross, um, at, yeah. at 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 these this president's pardons. Well, let me go to Rosa, and then I'll go back to Ed. But Rosa, I, um, as a former official in the Pentagon and as somebody whose uh, husband was a career military guy, um, what do you think the reaction is within the career military to this this move on the part of the president? Some people have spoken out, but it seems yeah. to be incredibly uh, potentially demoralizing. I think it's it's extremely demoralizing, and and you know I think that. Certainly, all of the people in the military community who who I've been having contact with in the last week or so are are shocked and really upset by it uh, because the American military invests an enormous amount of energy into training troops uh, about the laws of war and both both in the sort of legalistic sense of this is the law. You know, and it's it's not only international law; it's part of incorporated into the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Don't violate it because be in legal trouble. But also, also trying to point out that how important it is strategically for the U.S. to to be able to say and mean it uh, that we care about upholding these standards. You know, it 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 
it helps us, it helps make other people in other countries where we're operating, ordinary people, more likely to provide information to us. It helps make our adversaries more likely to surrender to us if they know that they will be treated appropriately and humanely and legal, in, in legal ways. Um, and when, you know, so, so we, our military spends a huge amount of time trying to make sure every service member from, from the, you know, lowliest ranked newly enlisted service member up to the very highest levels understands that. And then to have the president of the United States, the commander in chief, make it manifestly clear, not, not for the first time, unfortunately, um, you know, back on the campaign trail, obviously, he was cheerfully talking about uh, his fondness for uh, interrogation using torture and the idea that we should target the children of terrorists and so forth. Um, so, so this is not the first time President Trump has has signaled his ignorance of and contempt for these values that really go at the core of to the core of our military sense of identity. Um, but it's it's so demoralizing, you know. And 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 these are people who, you know, have gone through investigations done by the military. You know, it's not as though some random person who just didn't understand what it's like. Uh, in combat, uh, uh, has investigated these cases and 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 in some cases, prosecuted them, uh, 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 convicted them. That these are these are prosecutors, defense attorneys, and uh, jury panels, in effect, um, that are made up of military personnel entirely, uh, and and they have judged these their own peers as having violated the the sort of most basic legal and moral precepts that should guide them. And for the commander in chief to then come in and say, you know, I don't care what what the military justice system does, I'm gonna pardon them for these horrific things is uh, you know, it's it's beyond demoralizing. It's 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 appalling and it's should be a scandal in its own right. I Can want- I endorse completely what Riza just said? This is Corey. Yeah, go ahead. No, full stop. She's exactly right. I can't improve upon that. Yeah, and in one one case, um, one case of a of a Navy SEAL, seven members of his own unit were the ones that turned him in um, because they felt it was so inappropriate. And uh, so it's it's a pretty pretty shocking development. Oh um, wait, there is one thing I'd like to add, which is that. I have noticed in the Twitter conversation, um, lots of people who are knowledgeable on the subject of morality, warfare, uh, legal uh, legal processes for military folks, have felt the need to to validate their credentials on the subject. Actually, David, you even kindly just very did did it when you introduced Rosa, the, the wife of a veteran and having served in the Pentagon herself. But none of those things are required in order to have a voice to talk about these issues, standing to talk about these issues, that we, we make a terrible mistake as a society if we defer to people in military service or people who have had military service these issues. These are properly issues for us as a free society to debate and we don't need to hide behind uniforms to have the validity of our views on the subject. Amen. I totally agree. You know, Ed, you have no credentials in this area. And And yet, how do you feel about shooting children, enemy children, civilians who are not threatening to you, Ed? Does this seem complicated? No, it seems pretty straightforward if, uh, you know, if they're in your way. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, they're, 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 all yeah. fair and up and war. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> no, Ed. but but Corey, Corey is uh, completely right that there's this tendency to, you know, people who have not been in the military are overly deferential and kind of go, well, war is hell. What do I know? Um, but, you know, this is not complicated stuff. These and and the particular individuals we're talking about, these are not people who who engage in actions that are sort of morally ambiguous and. Well, you could sort of see, you know, these, these are people who did really horrific stuff. Yeah, absolutely true. We have 11 minutes or 10 minutes to go here in this particular episode. And I, I know that everybody out there who's listening would say, well, just go on and on and on. 
but but we can't do that. Um, uh, Ed, let me turn to yet another of the big stories of the week. In some respects, um, from a geopolitical perspective, may maybe um, approaching the the first subject that we talked about, although it's a completely different vein, and that is that the United States did. determined that um, they were going to put Huawei, the world's largest supplier of telecommunications equipment, on a list that they could not source from U.S. companies, do business with U.S. companies. Since then, Google and some others have announced they won't be working with Huawei. Uh, This is because of perceived security risks uh, that are associated with Huawei products. it may also be to some extent due to perceived uh, sense that Huawei is going to come in and dominate the 5G market. Europe is sort of in a slightly different position on this, conflicted. But this, of course, lies at the center of a U.S.-China trade dispute, which seems to be escalating. Um, I uh, believe that today uh, your newspaper, the FT, had an op-ed in it talking about how the Chinese are potentially hunkering down for long conflict. And at the center of U.S. trade tensions with China for the next decade, at least, is going to be this issue of protecting technology, forcing the transfer of technology, investing in technology, because the U.S. fears China getting ahead, uh, fears the security implications of that, and also um uh, that you know the Chinese are pushing hard in this area, and I'm wondering what your view is on this big story. Well, it's it's uh, really a, a classic example of how trade is becoming more and more weaponized um, between the United States and China. You know, because what is Huawei? Is is Huawei um, solely a national security issue, um, uh, or is it also a, a competitive, a commercial issue? Because Huawei is the leading supplier builder of 5G networks around the world. Um, it's gone to number one in in, in, in the sort of global competitive stakes. And the United States has um, put a lot of pressure, the Trump administration has put a lot of pressure on um, other governments around the world, particularly allies, to ban Huawei from building its 5G networks, some of which, like Australia, have complied um, others of which, um, like Britain, in fact, have given ambivalent responses um, and said, well, maybe they can build parts of the network and not the sort of core bits, to which the response from here, not just the Trump administration, from from some independent experts is no, look, once it's in, it's in. Um, so it, it, the debate sort of ultimately revolves around, is Huawei a sort of sleeper a sleeper unit for the Chinese state. And I think it's probably pretty reasonable to say that it is. It's formed by, you know, an ex-Chinese soldier. It's been given um, a lot of preferential contracts by the Chinese state. Chinese companies are required to cooperate with Chinese national security interests when requested, such as sharing data and um, presumably providing tools of espionage. Um, so the question isn't whether Huawei, you know, is a um, is a potential national security threat. I suppose it's it's really about the way in which the Trump administration is going about this. Um, and I can't help thinking that if you look at how Trump wants to build America, America's 5G network, he's missing a big opportunity here. He's, he said it should be done by the private sector entirely. AT&T and people should build it. Um, and I think most people you know, who are close to this issue have a very different view, which is look, this is a classic um, opportunity to do what we did in the Cold War, um, which is have public research and development in, pri- in, in partnership with private companies to build a really, a really robust, impressive, world-beating system. Um, that AT&T, you know, being given a few tax breaks is just not going to is not going to do. Um, uh, so uh, it, the industrial policy side of this debate is uh, it, domestically in America is also a very, very important um, piece of it. But yeah, the long the long view of this um, is, I think, that my paper and others take is is I think the correct one. It is whether or not we get a truce in this particular phase of the U.S.-China trade war, maybe at the G20 summit, 
when uh, she and Trump uh, next meet in June next month in Tokyo, or whether it's later, that that would just be a a, a waste stop on a, on a much longer journey that's going to be generational, I think. Um, and uh, and you know the problem the problem here is very very different to the first Cold War, where um, the Soviet economy was really not entwined with the Western economies at all. But the very sort of enmeshment of China with with the West illustrated very nicely by the Huawei example, is going to make every trade move, every economic move, automatically a national security one and vice versa to some extent too. This is immensely complicated and it's, it's, it's not going to produce a simple winner or loser. There will be many moments where everybody just loses. Yeah, by the way, I would say it's complicated further by the fact that the president can't get anything through the Congress. And so one of the things that he's doing is he's turning to a uh, not so often used section of U.S. trade law called Section 232 to make everything a national security decision. And he's uh, as recently as on Friday made the decision to say that there are elements to auto um, trade uh, that pose a national security risk to the U.S.? Is it because they do? No. Is it because um, they want to block uh, auto tariffs to gain leverage to get access to other markets? Yes. But of course, once you do that, your credibility on everything that has to do with national security falls into question. Yeah, we got four or five minutes left here. Uh, I've been trying to cover the world here, and as I, as I, as we periodically do when there's so much happening, uh, there are many, many stories I've missed. So what I'd like to do is go to each of you for a minute, and I'd like you to tell me some story that I've missed that you think we ought to be paying attention to in a, in a, in a nutshell. It's unfair whoever I call on first here, but let me go to you, Corey, because you're so <laughs> smart. <laughs> okay. Well, I will offer a good news story that I just came across in uh, Stars and Stripes, uh, which is that um, the United States is entering into its second commander's exchange. So uh, we have had a British general officer in command of a division of U.S. forces and vice versa. And we are now going to have the same exchange with France. And that represents such a deepening of trust between allies to put your young men and women in the hands of the judgment of someone from an allied country instead of from your own. And, you know, we talk a lot about what President Trump is destroying, but maybe I think not enough about what um, those elements of American civil society, of American political and military institutions that understand the value of alliance trust and alliance relationships and an America that holds hands with countries that share its values add to our well-being and to our security. And, and so I offer that as one example of something that probably slipped under the radar screen at the White House and bravo to the United States Army for bringing one of Lafayette's counterparts back to Lafayette's American Army. Well, I, that's a very good news story, but you're not being fair to President Trump, who has installed a Russian commander in chief. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Evelyn? Well, so I don't have a good news story. I actually have a tragedy to mention, um, which is that the Syrians, with the help of their Russian allies, have started bombing in northwest Syria, um, specifically the, <clears throat> the city and province of Idlib. And... There were about 3 million people there, and about 180,000, I think, have fled. The rest of them don't know what to do. Um, the international community is asleep at the switch. And, you know, Turkey and Russia, they had arranged some sort of ceasefire, which held until recently. We all knew that something was going to give because, of course, Assad does want this piece of territory with this population back under his control. 
But shame on the international community, shame on our government um, for not doing something thus far to stop what looks like could become a really horrendous, another horrendous bloodbath in Syria. Uh, thank you for that. There's plenty of shame to go around on our government. Um, yeah, Ed, that was that was what I was going to nominate too, David. By the way, which was what the Idlib story? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to give you another 60 seconds, Ed. Uh, there's, there's a story I think um, that really leapt out at me because I haven't read it anywhere else. Although I believe John Oliver did a really good show on it. Uh, which was by my colleague uh, Rana Faruha about how Wall Street is moving into the trailer park business. Um, one in 15 Americans now live in trailer parks. Um, I mean, some of them aren't as bad as it sounds. Some of them are manufactured homes, which are, you know, they're not on wheels and they're not tiny. But nevertheless, one in 15 Americans live in trailer parks, which has gone up considerably since the financial crash. And Wall Street see a financialization opportunity. Um, and so you've got the big private equity firms like Carlyle, like Blackstone, and others are moving in to own the ground on, you know, that the, these, um, these trailers um, rent and pushing up the rents very, very steeply. And I mention this because, you know, we, we, um, we're going into an election where ostensibly America's got really historic um, low unemployment levels and it's got um, high growth. Um, but where most people aren't feeling it, and in fact, in some respects, people are worse off than they were a decade ago. And therefore the anger and frustration um, is, uh, is just as deep as it was, if not deeper. And I, I think we, we often overlook the economics of this uh, at the ground level. Wall Street, Wall Street getting into trailer parks is just such a startling example. Yeah, and, and pretty repulsive. By the way, you get very big points um, on this podcast for any mention of the John Oliver Show because of course, my oldest daughter is a writer for the John Oliver Show, and therefore we root for the John Oliver Show on a weekly basis. Um, uh, Rosa, have you come up and with it's another? It's a very fine show. It's a very fine show. Have you come up with another story, or perhaps you would like to give us sixty seconds on the latest stonewalling attempt of the White House, uh, which is to prohibit former White House Chief Counsel Don McGahn from speaking to the Congress? What's the matter, David? Mass humanitarian uh, crisis ongoing in Syria, not to mention renewed potential for conflict between proxy conflicts and non and direct conflict between multiple powers in Syria. Not good enough for you? Um, well, you know, as we would say back in the Obama administration, what can we do about that? <laughs> Indeed. Stop. Um, no, I, I mean, I, w I was going to mention that because I think it's, it's you know, not only is it just yet another uh, chapter in the sort of ongoing tragedy and awfulness, but it's, it's another moment where there's significant potential for uh, inadvertent conflict to erupt between various parties, Turkey, uh, the United States, Russia, Iran, Syria, you know, uh, as a result of everybody trying to protect their own interests uh, in a very small, very, very dangerous, very turbulent area. Um, but but no, I mean, the, the latest, uh, yes, I also saw the headline that the White House is uh, refusing to let McGahn testify. You know, so on the one hand, in McGahn's case, um, that doesn't particularly surprise me and is not as alarming as some of what of the other things that the White House has done. Because you know, White House lawyers occupy to the extent that there is a case for executive privilege, it's probably strongest for someone like McGahn, a legitimate case. Um, I'm more concerned about the uh, various efforts to block people like Robert Mueller from testifying. Um, um, but uh, one other story that I think is worth mentioning before we before we close, the the New York Times has an interesting piece on. Uh, efforts by the Chinese government to uh, uh, exert influence in, in Australia, often through economic uh, means. And that's a piece that's worth reading. It's, it's, and I think that I mean, the interesting question it raises for me, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, 
Um, you know, as China uh, flexes its muscles in a wide variety of ways, you know, what should we worry about and what should we not worry about? Um, it, it sort of raises for me that question of, do we know, do we actually really, uh, you know, we worry about Chinese influence, but do we have a theory about, are we worried about all Chinese influence, some Chinese influence, some types of Chinese influence? And, and, and I think often when we have those conversations, we don't really break it down as much as we should, but that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, it is. It's also a very different conversation in Australia, which sort of bumps up against Asia and uh, the anti-Chinese feelings in Australia um, have a bit of a racist subtext to them, uh, or at least historically have in the, have in the past. Uh, and it also brings us nicely full circle because, of course, uh, in a sort of surprise result, the conservative government in Australia just won re-election. Uh, we could also point to stories in the paper in the past couple of days, and I wanted to get to this with Ed, but we'll do it some other time um, uh, soon, that uh, the Modi government, which is more nationalist government, looks like they're going to win re-election. And, of course, what we talked about at the beginning was despite all of the defects of right-wing ethno-nationalism in the U.S. and Europe, uh, it looks like they're going to continue to win elections for a while, which is frightening for those of us in the U.S. and everywhere. But, of course, we can't discuss all these things. We've covered a lot of ground. We've done it because we have such a great group here. Um, and I want to thank uh, Rosa and Corey and Evelyn and Ed um, and invite you to join all of us again for the next episode of Deep State Radio this week, where they will all be with us. And we will be talking, among other things, about summer uh, reading, which is always one of our more popular shows, which surprises me. Um, but uh, you apparently, you guys read. Errors in my school teacher's heart, David. Yeah, well, uh, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always impressed that they put down the box wine long enough to pick up a book. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, particularly these days, um, and, um, uh, but, uh, you know, if you want, uh, more of, of discussions of what's going on in the sort of U.S. um, v. Trump package of cases on the show that we do live on Thursdays at five o'clock, we're going to have Ryan Goodman of Just Security back and we're going to talk, uh, continue the conversation, uh, we had with him. And of course we have Unredacted, uh, by DSR, uh, which, uh, show talks about politics and lots going on in politics this week with the sort of relaunch or of the or the big launch of the Biden campaign um, and uh, other developments. Um, and we have Washington for Beautiful People as well. So there's a lot of things you can go and tune into. And once you do, you'll think, wow, this is all great. What could I possibly do to show my appreciation? And of course, the thing to do is to go to the DSRnetwork.com, sign up, become a member, get a mug, get a T-shirt, do some of the things that help support us in doing all of this kind of uh, programming. Because as you listen to this episode, we didn't really talk about the subjects that dominate in the US, which is to say the Trump case and Game of Thrones. Um, and uh, instead, we talked about what was going on on the rest of the planet Earth, which you know there is some cause for that. In any event, thank you guys. And we'll um, expect to see you all again sometime soon here at Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.